Hey, everybody. Um, good to see you all. Um, glad that we could be together, even though the weather is a little bit uh, nasty out there. Hope you're staying warm and inside. Um, if we haven't yet met yet, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here and uh, really glad just to be able to be together. I was laughing with Brian before uh, everybody came on that this feels like March 2020 instead of March 2021. And Norton reminded me that this was actually uh, the Sunday a year ago that we, we took off and then we entered into kind of this COVID journey of, of online and back in person and online. And so it's it's nice to be able to be together when the weather makes it uh, tough to be together. So uh, uh, today we're going to be continuing uh, in this season of Lent, the journey through Lent that we've been going through. And if you're new to New Denver or you're not familiar uh, with the season of Lent, if you grew up maybe going to church, but your church didn't observe Lent, um, I had that experience growing up. Lent is the season of time leading up to uh, the celebration of Easter. So it's the it's a time historically that Christians have taken up practices of giving things up and taking things up as a way of focusing them in on the life of Jesus and preparing them for uh, celebrating his resurrection at Easter. And it's not too late. We're only about halfway through. So if you want to jump in, there's lots of resources on our website uh, where you can uh, find out how you can engage more deeply uh, through the week and not just on Sundays in the season of Lent. But today we're going to continue, um, as we have been on Sundays, looking at stories from the life of Jesus through the lens of ordinary, everyday objects. And today we're going to look through the lens of something that was absolutely central to Jesus's life. It was key and so important to his ministry. Um, and it's an item that's still a big part of our lives today. Um, it's an item that every one of us still uses every day. We own in multiples. Um, and if, if to see it, I would ordinarily say to see it, all you'd have to do is to look down at your feet, but you might not be wearing shoes right now. So given that we're all at home and online, uh, I'm, I'm actually wearing slippers. So uh, Norton said I should have worn Yeezys or, you know, something more fancy to do this message on shoes, but I don't own Yeezys. So I don't know what I would do. But uh, whatever you're wearing on your feet, if you have slippers or maybe you do have shoes on, maybe you've been out shoveling, you recognize that, that shoes um, are a big part of our life. And at a very basic level, shoes uh, they, they, they provide the same basic function that they did 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time. They protect our feet, right? They, they allow human beings uh, to move about more easily. But shoes are something that also give us an insight into some of the key differences between our life today and life at the time when Jesus lived in the first century. Because uh, while shoes for us um, are, are you know, something that we wear every day. Uh, for Jesus, they, they were a, a key part of his life uh, because they were also a mode of transportation. Um, during his time, while Romans had, had developed a lot of different kinds of shoes, the most co common kind of, of shoe that would have, would have been uh, normal for the everyday person living in Jesus's time was what we would call sandals, basically a, a thin piece of, of leather or animal hide that, that with, with straps that secured it to the, to the foot. And we, 
in a lot of ways, the, the designs are very similar to what we wear today. We have some pictures. Um, these sandals were actually recovered by archaeologists um, at a mountain stronghold called Masada, where there was a, a the, the Roman army besieged a group of Israelites and, and they were killed. And so archaeologists are now um, exhuming and, and finding all of these um, relics. And, and they've actually found these shoes. And as you can see, in some ways, uh, they look very, fairly similar to sandals that we wear today. And, but by contrast today to today, um, at that time, sandals would have been very rare. They would have been hard to make, and you probably wouldn't have owned a lot. Um, but today, shoes are widely available at relatively low cost in every conceivable shape, size, and function. Um, we've got a picture here of you know a typical shoe store with literally thousands of different options and they're all pretty low cost, pretty available to, to all people um, regardless of income levels. Um, I hear in America today surveys indicate that that Americans own a, uh, a, a lot of shoes. Uh, the average American man owns about 12 pairs of shoes. The average American woman owns 27. Um, I will add no commentary whatsoever to that statistic. I'm just going to leave that there. And my point is simply this. We all own a lot of shoes, some more than others, but we all own a lot of shoes. And most of us probably don't give a lot of thought about our shoes uh, other than maybe what do they, how do they go with what I'm wearing today? Or, or how do they fit whatever activities that I'm going to do? Um, what's my mood today? What do I feel like wearing? But in Jesus's time, as I said, shoes played a much more central role because they weren't just a clothing item. Shoes were the average person's primary means of transportation. In the first century, only the wealthiest of people would have been able to own um, a horse or a mule or, or much less a carriage or a chariot, something that could have conveyed them. No, if, if Jesus and his followers and the people like him and his sort of status, the, the average person of his day, if they were going to go somewhere, they were walking. No planes, no cars, no buses, of course, not even horse-drawn carriages. If Jesus and his followers were going to get somewhere, they were probably going to do it by foot. And this is, this is one of those details that we can easily miss or skip past when we're reading the stories about Jesus's life and trying to understand him and trying to understand the things that he did and why he did them. We, we can read past these details about his life, the geographical details that shape our understanding of what Jesus's day-to-day -day life might have been like and what he has to teach us through that. So for example, one of the accounts that we have of Jesus's life, it was written by a man uh, named Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus's first students and in his his public life, um, his, the, the very beginning of his public life, Matthew writes this about what Jesus did. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. So if you're familiar with the, the story of Jesus, you know this was kind of the beginning, the, the initiation of Jesus' ministry. He goes to be baptized by this man named John. And Matthew simply says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. Simple, right? Sounds like Jesus is walking across the street. Now, what Matthew didn't say, but he could have, is this. So Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel. And he embarked on a journey to the Jordan River just outside Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Israel. The journey was about 120 miles. 
And Jesus undertook this journey on foot, moving at an average human walking pace of about three miles per hour. Probably took him four days to get there. 120 miles. Four days of walking. So, so to put this in perspective for us, just so we can kind of wrap our minds around this, 120 miles is about the distance from here in Denver to Vail. So many of us have made that trip right. Some of us probably wish we could be making that trip today in the middle of a snowstorm. But if the traffic's not bad and you're going to Vail, that drive is about two hours by car, right? Have you ever, in the process of driving that trip, have you ever thought about walking it? I've thought a few times about the pioneers coming out, what it must have been like to be in a horse covered or a covered wagon or a horse drawn carriage, you know, coming west, you know, back in the 1800s. But imagine in Jesus' time walking 120 miles. Have you ever thought about walking 120 miles to get anywhere? I mean, maybe if you're um, into hiking or backpacking and Maybe you've done some, some through hiking. You know, I know some people who've done the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail. You know, they've literally walked thousands of miles. Or maybe you're an ultra marathoner. Um, maybe 120 miles doesn't sound like a big deal to you. But let's be honest, all of those things are recreation for us today. They're not done out of necessity. We don't walk 120 miles because we have to, because that's the only way we can get somewhere. No, we have lots of options today. But Matthew doesn't mention it. He doesn't make a big deal about it. He just simply says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. That's all he says. Because his audience at the time would have understood this and would have taken it for granted because that's just how people got around. That, that was just the normal mode of transportation. They wouldn't have thought anything about it. They had a different perspective <clears throat> about what it would have been like for Jesus that we miss with our modern eyes. And as you read through the stories of Jesus' life, what you begin to realize is that Jesus was not limited by the fact that, that he had to walk everywhere he went. He never stayed in one place for very long. Jesus is constantly on the move. When you read through the stories of his life, you can see that he's constantly moving from one place to another. Look what else Matthew says in his account of Jesus' life. In chapter, later in chapter 9, he says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus is walking from town to town. And as he, he does so, he's doing that with a group of people. He's doing that with his 12 students, his 12 disciples. And they're going from place to place, town to town, and they're engaging with people. And Jesus is looking at these people with compassion and seeing the, the, the challenges, the problems that they had, the sicknesses that they, that they encountered. He's entering into the stories of their life. And as he does that, he's proclaiming good news to them. Good news that God cares about them. Good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. A time and a place where, where God's way will be done perfectly here on earth, just as it is with God now in the heavenly realms. He's giving them hope. And he's inviting them to change their life, to be a part of what he's doing. 
Now, let me pause right here and let me ask the question you may be wondering about. So what? Like, so what? So Jesus walked everywhere. What's the big deal? What's the point? Why is that so interesting? Maybe it's a little interesting to think about the differences between our context, our times, but what's the point? Well, the point is this. At the heart of our faith, at the heart of the Christian faith, is this idea that Jesus was God incarnate. That Jesus was God in the flesh, fully human, but also fully God, arriving in human history at a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people, to proclaim this good news of God's kingdom. The time that Jesus lived was not an accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't as if Jesus was born and then God sort of decided to enter in at that time. No. It was intentional. It was intentional that God entered into human history at this point in this time. Now, I recognize you may be listening, and if you're not sure what you believe about, about Jesus or the Bible or that central part of Christian faith, I get it. That's okay. But the point is, that is core to what we believe as Christians. And so you have to take that in, step back, and you have to wonder, why? Why of all times in human history would God have chosen to enter into a time and space where life was so limited for human beings? They were limited to being able to, to move and, walk, and, and go around to, to different places. You would think that if, if Jesus wanted to get a message out, I mean, wouldn't he have come at a different time? I, I mean, he could have come now when Jesus could have had access to high-speed transportation, planes and trains and automobiles, all of those things to move from place to place. He could have had access to a global communications network to get his message out. Could have had access to the internet, to social media, to a 24-hour news cycle. But he didn't. Now here's God in the flesh walking on two human feet, moving from place to place at the average human walking speed of three miles per hour. And think about how he chooses to disseminate his message, this good news about the kingdom of God. He chooses 12 other human students to pour his life into, to spend intentional time with. He's walking with these people all day, every day, talking to them, talking about life, talking about what it means to follow God, what, what God's love to them means express and how that overflows into other people. They're doing this all at three miles an hour together. And, and these are not the best and brightest of all people, mind you. The, the stories of Jesus's life convey that these are simple day laborers and fishermen who, who are just following him around, listening to what he has to say, asking him often to explain the things that he said. But he chooses these 12 Men, and look how another of the accounts of Jesus' life describe what he calls them to go and do. Calling the twelve to him, Jesus that is, he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. 
And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus calls his students together and he asks them to take up his nomadic lifestyle, walking from town to town, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God and caring for the sick that they encounter in these villages. And he sends them out two by two so they they have someone to go with, someone to share this journey with. And look what he tells them. He says, don't take a lot with you. Don't try to be self-sufficient. Don't take any bread. Don't take a bag, no money. But hey, don't forget your shoes. You're going to be doing a lot of walking, so bring your shoes. And he sends them out in pairs, relying on good old-fashioned Middle Eastern hospitality. They're supposed to go from village to village and to find a house somewhere that will welcome them, to put them up with a place to stay and feed them and care for them while they're there sharing Jesus' message. And they're supposed to look for these people and find them. And if they don't find them, if they don't find anybody who will welcome them, they're supposed to shake the dust off their shoes and just keep on moving. Can you imagine what that might have been like for the disciples? I mean, if I go backpacking for a couple of nights, I have like 30 pounds of stuff on my back, you know, food and, you know, rain gear and, you know, sleeping bag. I mean, he says, don't take anything. Imagine what it must have been like for these these men walking in pairs, long hours on the road, talking about Jesus' teaching, walking from village to village, not really sure what they're going to find there, whether they'd be welcome to have a place to stay or food to eat that night. Imagine what it would be like interacting with the new people, encountering sick people and, and praying for them and caring for them and seeing them healed, trying to figure out how to convey this message that they didn't even fully understand about Jesus's life yet. Think about the hours that they spent around dinner tables, talking with these people, developing connection and relationship. What an amazing experience that had to be for Jesus's first students. Slowly, steadily, at a pace of about three miles an hour, they're moving around this small little corner of the globe. And as they did so, a movement was beginning. Jesus' movement of love and compassion for the whole world was starting there and moving slowly, so slowly, three miles an hour and gaining momentum. And this is what's so incredible to me. Even if you don't believe what the Bible says, even if you have questions about Jesus or God, think about it. Here we are 2,000 years later still talking about it. And around the world, billions of people are still talking about Jesus's message. That is a remarkable story. Just from a human perspective, how did this message of an obscure Jewish rabbi living in the first century, walking around, no modern technology to convey his message, only 12 students who he asked to do the same thing in 2,000 years Later, we're still talking about it. That is nothing short of miraculous. And for me, when I, when I read this story, I have to say that it exposes an arrogance for me about how real change and real transformation takes place in our world and with people. It, it reveals how flawed I think my own understanding is about how lasting change really takes place in the world. Because I think you have to go big. 
You have to be able to engage with so many people to get your message out and be able to, to, to motivate people to do anything or move things. Like, I think that way through the lens of our modern life. I think about our modern life and how unbelievable the technology we have is. I mean, it took Jesus four days to cover the distance we can cover now in two hours. And that's probably the furthest that Jesus ever went from where he was born. And then I think about my own life. I mean, later this week, I'm going to have the opportunity to get to go visit my mom. I'm leaving on Thursday. I'll get on a plane. I'll fly a thousand miles to see her. She lives in Mississippi. And then I'll turn around on Sunday and I'll fly the thousand miles back to be home. A journey that would have taken months in Jesus's time. And my experience will be very different. I'll sit in buses and trains with people, most of whom I won't really talk to. And if I do, it'll be really be really short and probably be kind of surfacy about whatever's happening right at the moment. And then they'll be gone. I won't see them again. I'll sit in an airplane next to people and I'll probably try to talk to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm that guy that tries to talk to people on the airplane. But eventually I'll figure out that either they don't want to talk or, you know, I'm ready to do some work or something. And then that'll be it. I mean, I'll be sitting in airport waiting areas this week. I'll be waiting in line um, to, to, get on a, 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 to get on a train or a bus to, to make it to my flight, or I'll be waiting in line to get food. I'll probably be surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands of people. But until I get off the plane in Mississippi and see my mom, I'll be totally alone. There may be no better picture for our modern life today than that. We live in a state of what sociologists have called crowded loneliness. Surrounded by people, but feeling isolated and alone. Depression, anxiety and loneliness, isolation, all characterize our modern life. And this has been true for a long time, but I think it's especially true during the time of a pandemic. Because interactions with people, even people we know, they're not just awkward or uncomfortable or, or difficult sometimes, but potentially dangerous. So we're maybe more wary of connection with other people. And when I, I compare this modern existence that we have today to Jesus's life, when I think about the God of the universe walking around a tiny obscure part of the ancient Middle East at three miles an hour, sharing life, cultivating relationships with his followers, entering into the lives of the people that he encountered on the road and in these small villages. Jesus was known. He was deeply known, eating meals in people's homes. Then the, the importance, as I think about that, as I think about his way of life, the importance of when he lived to facilitating his mission starts to become clear to me. The reasons for why Jesus came and lived at the time that he did seem clearer because knowing people and being known was what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to bring a message. Jesus was the message. One of his followers, John, said he was the word, the incarnate word of God become flesh, dwelling among us as human beings. God coming to us, bringing the message in the person of Jesus. And from our perspective, looking back at Jesus' life, we would say his life was technologically poor. 
but it was relationally rich, so much richer than ours today. And when I realized this and I stepped back to consider the heart of Jesus' message, the, the core thing that he wanted his followers to get, his greatest command, that a meaningful life consists in loving God and loving others. When I think about that as a primary goal of life, then it begins to make sense why Jesus lived when he did and how he did. It wasn't an accident that Jesus was moving at three miles an hour everywhere he went. Jesus's impact was not in spite of his limitations. It was, at least in part, because of his limitations. And when I realize that, and I think about what it means for us to try to follow the way of Jesus, I see what a tremendous disadvantage we're at when we try to live that way in today's fast-paced, technology-saturated world. We move easily from place to place, quickly and efficiently, never really slowing down enough to appreciate the spaces and the places that are right underneath our shoes. We move swiftly past people every day that we'll never meet, never know, much less share the joy of a good meal with. We, we work alongside people, live next to people whom we know and are known by only at a very surface level. And as I think about the problems of our modern existence, I can tell you I don't have an easy fix for this today. There's not three steps towards living a slower, deeper, richer relational life. There's no easy way to close this Pandora's box and reverse the unintended consequences of these modern technologies that both bless and curse us, to be sure. But I do think if we want to follow the way of Jesus, if we want to live as Jesus lived, it calls us to ask how we need to push against this modern way of life. If God moves at three miles per hour, maybe following him is going to call us to slow down and to move at that pace ourselves. Now, you may be thinking right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We can't move any slower. Everything's been shut down. Things can't get any slower than they are. Our life has ground to a halt over the last year. And that is true. A few months into the pandemic, I started thinking about this, though, that, that this imposed limitation that's been placed on us, I began thinking, maybe this won't be all bad. There, there's certainly a lot of negatives that came out of the pandemic. But, but I began thinking about this fast-paced world that most people, most of us were living in, that maybe just maybe there'd be some blessings in a forced slowdown, a kind of virus-imposed Sabbath rest or sabbatical. And I began hoping that maybe, just maybe, we would see some blessings start to come in the midst of all the challenges and the curses, that, that we'd begin to see what we'd been missing all along right in front of us, that, that with all the Curses and challenges that maybe the pandemic would help us to see how important human connection really is when it's taken away from us. And here we are a year later, and I think there are signs and indications in my life and the lives of the people that I know and people that I've talked to and even things that I've been reading that there are glimmers of hope, glimmers of goodness in the midst of all that the pandemic has taken. There's been things that it's given us as well. I've heard stories of mothers and fathers who used to travel constantly for work, who've been grounded 
stuck at home, being drawn closer to each other and to their kids. I've heard stories of family dinners at home or dinners with roommates and friends, whoever you're stuck in your germ community with. Um, I've heard about the joys of the freedom from a daily commute because your commute is now from your bedroom to wherever your office is in your house. Uh, And even though there's been hardships in figuring out some of that remote work and doing online school, I've also heard stories of gratitude for things that have been gained, stories of friends and neighbors that have seen each other more often than they did before because everyone's life has been shrunken down into this small little bubble. I was just reading a story yesterday that gave me such an incredible sense of hope for what God might be doing in ways that we don't even see or understand. The Wall Street Journal had this article about a trend that's happening for young adults that came from small rural towns and moved to large metropolis cities. And when the pandemic hit, they made the choice to move back home, to move back to the small towns that they were from. Why? Because they realized the importance of roots and deep connection over this past year and how important in a time of crisis being known and being connected really is. Yeah, the world is a very different place than it was a year ago in so many ways. And the negative impacts are for sure there. They continue to reverberate. We're going to continue to recognize the negative impacts of of this pandemic. And yet, as we seem perched right on the edge of a slow but steady movement back towards what life looked like before all this. I just read that that air travel is at an all-time high in the last year. Right now, people are starting to get moving again. And as we do, I wonder, is it possible to hold on to the good things that being forced to slow down has brought to us? I wonder if it's possible for some of us to emerge into a post-pandemic world with a renewed sense of how valuable human connection and human relationships really are? Or will we simply return to the fragmented, fast pace of life we had before? I suppose that's up to each one of us, right? To decide now, what is our life after going to look like? But I wonder, I wonder what the impact to our lives might be if every morning when we slipped on our shoes or when we laced them up to head out the door, we remembered Jesus moving through his life three miles an hour. I wonder about what the impact might be if we chose to slow down to God's speed, to begin to see, really see the people that we can so easily move past every single day in our busy lives. I wonder what it might be like to emerge from this pandemic as people who resist the urge to go fully back to the way things were, rushing from place to place, never really seeing or noticing what God was doing right in front of us all along. So I hope this, and this will be my challenge for the week, and then we'll close. This week, as you slip on your shoes to head out the door, take a breath. Say a prayer. Ask God to help you see the people in the circumstances of your life as he sees them. And be prepared to respond to be the person that he's calling you to be. In the moments and the places and with the people that he calls you to. Let's pray that he would help us to do that this week. 
God, thank you that you blessed our humanity by coming to us. Um, Thank you for Jesus, a picture of what it looks like to be a life fully united with you, to truly be fully human. Help us to see the ways that Jesus' life and his limitations were a way of blessing our full humanity. And God, may we embrace those as well, not to try to um, go big or, or, or exceed or, or outstrip our humanity, but to embrace it, um, to move with you at three miles an hour. As we put on our shoes this week to go out into the places that you call us to go, um, help us to slow down, to slow our bodies down, our minds down, and give us eyes to see the things that you're doing in the world around us, that we might engage and be people that that love you and love others in the ways that you've called us to do it. And we pray all these things through the Son and by the Spirit.